And so, Father, just ask that you would help center our hearts on you right now. Just prepare that ground to receive the word so that it finds a place to produce in our lives. God, we do. We just thank you. Thank you for finding us. We don't know where to find ourselves at times. And just thank you for your love and your goodness. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Go ahead and you can take a seat. Um, normally, uh, you know, when you come in, you're handed the notes. And today, uh, you received paper with lines on it. And uh, so what does that represent? It means that um, somebody didn't get their notes in in time to the people who print them. And uh, it was obviously me. And here's, here's the story behind it real quick. Um, normally, we, we are um, a week to two weeks ahead of time on all of our messages. And it's just been a super, super busy time. So coming into this week, when I would have written it on Wednesday, um, it was, you just have one of those weeks that it's like it's out of your control. And you just, at some point, you have to just go with it um, in order to be able to do everything that's being required of you. And so the push-me-pull-me part of that was that uh, Wednesday came and went without a chance to sit down and actually write the notes. They print them on Thursday. Thursday came and went without a time to write them. And so I contacted a person in our creative department and just said, hey, I, I think I'll have them to you on Friday, I hope. And she said... Uh, Pastor, would it be okay if I just do lines on paper? She said, I'm off this weekend, and I'd really like to be off. And so I yes, you, you can definitely be off. So uh, it's not our normal way to do it, and um, maybe it's a message, honestly. Maybe when you hear the message, um, there was one other part to why it took so long to write the message, too. It was what I said. It was a week, and the last couple have just been just really a busy time for us. But it also, um, we're in a series called Christians Might Be Crazy. And it's not tongue-in-cheek. It's meant to, um, to speak to this point of view, that Jesus gave us a kingdom that's paradoxical to this world. So, for instance, if you want to be first, Jesus said you need to be. And if you want to be greatest, be the. And so you can just automatically, it runs contrary to how the world says this is what it's supposed to look like. So when I use the idea that Christians might be crazy, it's not to say that I think that we're crazy. But the things that we do, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you could look at what we do and think, those people have lost their mind. So for instance, a couple of weeks ago, Rebecca teaches, and she teaches on the Holy Spirit. And unless you know who the Holy Spirit is, and the value of the Holy Spirit, and the desire for the Holy Spirit, then you could look at that and go, those people, what, what is wrong with them? And then last week, I taught on the idea that uh, there was a survey that was done asking uh, a million people across the United States questions about how they perceive believers. And we keyed in on a certain demographic, 18 to 44, people who uh, consider themselves to be uh, unchurched or de-churched, meaning they had some experience, but they are not currently involved, and then asking them specific questions about how they view the church and um, always in their top answers of the reason that they wouldn't join a church or that they wouldn't belong uh, to a church was, was this famous line. I'm sure you heard, the church is full of hypocrites. So I talked about, let's, let's explore that for just a minute. Is it really a church issue or is it a human issue? Because we all say things and then sometimes do another. And if you're like, I've never done that, you're doing it right now as you 
say that. We all do it. And so we just explored that. So maybe people have a perception about it that's not quite accurate. So this week, here's what we're doing. And this may have been why the notes took a little bit longer and it was a little more difficult to write, quite honestly. I'm going to talk about martyrs this week. Because when people look at anybody, a follower of Jesus who would be willing, first of all, to live a life um, that requires some level of self-denial and a greater level of preferring others, but then ultimately uh, our gospel has been bought and paid for by the blood of people who have come before us. And right now around the world, listen to this statement, the greatest number of people being martyred for Christ didn't happen 2,000 years ago. It's happening today in our world. We don't experience a lot of it here in America, but the rest of the world is experiencing unprecedented levels of believers who it's very costly for them to not only profess that they believe in Jesus, but the way they have to live their lives is very much in a way that you and I would not even identify that's what a Christian is. And so in the Western world, part of what we have done is we've lost the message that sometimes to be a follower of Jesus can be very costly. How costly? Maybe your very life. And I know we live in a time where we tend to think, well, that could never happen here in my lifetime. The, <laughs> the anger towards believers is turning rapidly, yes or no. Do you see it? It's very much turning that way. So I would just say to you, maybe the message is more timely than you think, simply because I think in our day to be unprepared that if you confess that you're a follower of Jesus, it could cost you something. It could cost you that you are unpopular to say so. You know, it's easy to be a fan when the team's winning. I think we know something about that right, right now. But fans um, and followers are two different things, aren't they? Followers are in it regardless. And fans are, hey, as long as it's working for me. As long as it feels like we're winning. So that's maybe, maybe the message. It took a little longer to write because it's a little more serious than what I normally do. And I guess one other thing that I'm going to throw out with it too would be uh, this. So I realize this is not the message that you'd want to um, have a steady diet of. And I think if you take what I teach you know, over the long, you'll realize it's probably not my typical message. But I think, um, I think somewhere... In, in Western Christianity, we've lost the message that Jesus himself said, hey, I've suffered, so don't think that you won't suffer. And we, we enter into it because of what it can do for me and the way that it makes me feel. And oftentimes, the wording we even use for our relationship with God through churches, uh, it makes me feel good. Uh, it, it, how, how it what it does for me, right? And that is a part of it. I don't deny that. But if you're in it for only what it does for you, you're only half in. The real issue is you should be in it for him regardless. Does that make any sense? All right, so that's, that's where I'm going to take the message today. Uh, let's pray. Let's just ask the Lord to help because I, I think it's one of those. So, Father, love you and thank you for the opportunity to teach this morning. And, Lord, I don't want to shrink back from something that I think you hold in high esteem, and I think that there's a message on two levels. One, just to teach on martyrs who have come before us, uh, those who are living in our day, and sort of prophetically what's going on uh, in the church worldwide, 
but also, Lord, um, to speak to our church today and to speak to the group of people that you've, you've called together, called Jubilee, about the idea that it's more than just what I get out of it, it's what I give to it. And asking that real question, am I a fan or am I a follower ultimately? And so, Holy Spirit, you've got to take this and make it what it's supposed to be. The truth of the matter is, God, I'm going to fall way short of what this message is supposed to be without the help of the Holy Spirit. So I'm just asking you right now. You said if we lack wisdom, we can ask, and you give it liberally, not uh, preferring one over the other. So help me and help us. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's a question. Uh, Think about it. And let me, you don't need to, rhetorical, um, yes, but serious, because I want you really to think about this, but don't be quick to answer it, and maybe I don't even want you to answer it out loud. Could you, would you, if it was required, lay down your life for Jesus? Just think about it for a moment. Could you, would you? If it was required, lay down your life for this gospel. So last night when we got home, Chris said to me, it scared me when you asked that question. Because she takes what I say, literally, and she's asking herself, could I really do it? And she said, it scared me because I don't know if I could do it or not. So then I said this, and she said that part really brought me comfort. So let me say it again to you. Could you or would you lay down your life if it was required... You probably can't answer that question in all honesty because if you say, I don't think I could do it, you really don't know what you could do unless you're in the moment. And if you say, I could do it, you're probably answering too quick because you don't know how costly it can be to actually sacrifice. So here would be the truthful thing that I would tell you. It's really hard to answer that question in your brain by itself. What you really need to know is this. In the moment that it was required of you to have to sacrifice, God's grace would be given to you in that moment, in that hour, in that minute. And in his grace, you can do anything. So the one comfort that I want you to take right off the bat is that this message is not like, hey, God wants you to suffer. Go out and look for suffering today. That's not it. If you're supposed to suffer, you don't have to look for it. It'll find you. The question that I'm asking you is, if it was required, are you in it if it's required? Or do you confess a belief in something without the practice of it? You know, we all do that from time to time too, right? We say we believe in something, but we don't actually practice it. Want me to catch you? How many of you belong to a health club? How many of you actually go? The money comes out of the account every month. It makes us feel like we're working out. We can say we're paying for it, but do we actually... So we profess a belief in something, but do we actually practice it? So like the Bible, from the beginning of Matthew to the end of Revelation, our entire gospel that's given to us over and over again, it tells us that we are to prefer other people, to make allowances for, to to put others first. And here's a thought. When we can't do that with each other, how would we ever lay down our lives for Jesus? So we profess, but do we practice? It's really an important issue. We say that we're in it, but then it's so difficult for us to give any time, to give any money, to give any affection, to give any passion. We're so leveraged in so many other ways. We say, yes, I'm in, but 
Do we profess it because it's easy to profess and not actually live that way? Or is there maybe a deeper message here that God would challenge us with? Uh, this weekend uh, in the Wall Street Journal, this little article uh, caught my attention. It was on the second page. Here's the title of it. Religiosity and church attendance fall sharply in America. How many of you have been hearing reports about how bad the church is doing in America? Right? It's like all the time reported. Uh, I just took a closer look at it. And here's what they're saying, that in our time and in our day, more and more people are turning away from church and turning away from religion. I would say to you, it's actually not what they see on the surface. I would say that in our past 50 or 60 years, it was easy to profess that you were a Christian and not have to live it. And what's happening in our day and time is that if you say you are, it's becoming more costly. So what we're finding is more people who are unwilling to say it. Because it's becoming more and more costly now. It's that idea that you can profess something and not actually live it. So let me give you an example. Politicians, 30 years ago, in order to get elected, you had to talk about going to church. You didn't have to actually go, but you had to talk about going. Today, if you say it, you're literally you're mocked and you're ridiculed for doing such a thing. To, to be part of... Uh, <laughs> In, in the greater idea of the culture, it, it was common to say, I've got some form of Judeo-Christian beliefs. You could say it, but not practice it. And so many people did. But the truth of the matter is, man, it's saying it and not practicing it is not where it's at. It's how you actually practice that matters. One of our missionaries, Larry Good, who's in Peru. Uh, Larry, he, he's a friend, a 30-year friendship and a guy that I've watched God do tremendous things with. The first mission trip he ever went on uh, was with me uh, in, in Romania. And it was, a, it was a tremendous, challenging trip. I watched God do so much in Larry's life. And then years later, as he felt called to give his life away to another people group, Larry ended up in Peru, and he serves orphans. There's so many throwaway children in so many parts of the world. You can't, you can't imagine. And Larry was down there on a mission trip and saw the great need and felt God call him. And he ends up giving his life to these groups of people. And Larry's idea is not, hey, I'm going until I retire. His idea is I'm going until I'm done. And he really fits the mold of what 100 years ago most missionaries did. They were called one-way missionaries. Listen to this. Meaning that they would buy a one-way ticket to whatever destination they were going to. And they would pack all of their belongings in a coffin so that when they came back home, it was them in the coffin being shipped back. They were going one way to give their lives to one group of people and to lay it all down. And we saw that as such a high esteemable thing. And when I say something like that in the Western church, people go, that's crazy. Yeah. Believers today go, that's crazy. And that used to be the normal way. That you serve Jesus. Larry sent me this, uh, <laughs> this YouTube video on the fastest growing church in the world. That intrigued me, so I opened it up and then I realized it's a two hour video. <laughs> two hours. If you'd like to watch it, it's really interesting. It's called Sheep Amongst Wolves. There's a little saying that Jesus said, I send you out like sheep amongst wolves. And it's called Sheep Amongst Wolves. And so this is not rhetorical. See if you can guess it. Where's the 
fastest growing church in the world happening today? What? Well, somebody just said something. China is an excellent guess. And listen, five years ago, you'd have been correct. Korea is one of the fastest growing, and it has the world's largest church, a church with more than 100,000 people. Can you imagine parking for that many people? <laughs> I would backslide every weekend. Anybody else? Philippines is a good one. Iran is the answer. The fastest growing church in the world today is led primarily, listen, by women. <laughs> who have to hide it. And when they leave their house every day, they make a decision that I may not be coming back this evening. And the fastest growing church in the world today by thousands is in Iran. And isn't it just like our God to undermine one of the most godless governments by causing a revolution underneath? And it's so easy for us to judge that, but he needs to do the same thing here in America. He needs to do the same thing here in America. And the price that they pay in Iran for their faith is unbelievable. One of our church fathers, uh, a man you may or may not have ever heard of. His name was Tertullian. Um, he wrote a book called uh, a, a, The Apologetics of Faith. And in, um, in AD, somewhere between 150 and 200, um, he made a statement about why the church was growing so fast. He was put on trial for his faith in front of Rome. And under the threat of being beheaded for what he believed... He was asked, are you a Christian? What do you believe? And then given a chance to renounce his faith so that he could save his own neck. And here was his answer to the procurator who was questioning him and who held his life in his hand. He said, the more we are mown down by you, the more in number we grow. The blood of Christians is actually seed for our faith. Wow. That's an answer. That's not shrinking back when it counts the most. I think that he was right. I think that when we ask ourselves, how did that first century church have so much healing, so much power, and so much of the Holy Spirit? Because I don't think they were fans. I think they were followers, and it was costly to say so. And because of that, look, they recognized Jesus, and Jesus recognized them. The very first martyr of the church was Stephen. And this is what the Bible records about him. While he's being stoned, he looked up into heaven and he says this out loud. I see Jesus, listen to this, standing. I wonder if Jesus, when he saw this man giving his life, didn't get up off of his throne and think, look at this right here. So he saw Jesus, but Jesus saw him. There's something to laying down your life that gets God's attention. Now, you can take it all the way to the idea of laying it down to the point of death, but I would say when you are willing to suffer, to prefer somebody else, to give up your rights in order to let the gospel go forward, to show people that it's really true, that it's not just something I confess, but it's the way I live. There's something powerful to that, yes or no? And maybe the reason we lack the power today is that so many of us talk but don't live. So, Pastor... Uh, 
don't know if I like this message. Can't you make us laugh? Come back next week. <laughs> but not this week. Because I think this is a lost message in the Western church today that's very costly to us. When I was trying to think how I would talk about what a martyr is and how I would try to do justice to the idea of it, I actually wrote down four different martyrs that I want to kind of reflect on here. Um, let, let's define martyr real quick. Does martyr have to mean a person who dies for their faith or can martyr mean a person who suffers for their faith? So that, that's what I want to use definition as. For sure, it's a person who dies for their faith, no question about it. But I also want to say a martyr is a person who suffers for their faith too. And that fits because one of the martyrs I'm going to talk about here is a person who comes and visits our church and you've heard him speak if you've been here any length of time and he has suffered for his faith. Let me do the first one though. Jesus had a brother named James. James actually was the apostle over Jerusalem and watched over the church in Jerusalem. They considered him, here was his nickname, James the Just, because he was the most Jewish of all the apostles. He was the one that fought with Peter and fought with Paul because he thought that Jewish converts to Christianity should still keep the Jewish law. They should be circumcised. They should eat kosher. They, they should keep the law. And Paul would fight with James over and over and over again and tell him, listen, We've been set free. We don't have to do those things in order to be pleasing to God. But he would say, Jesus himself said, I didn't come to do away with the law, but to fulfill the law. And they would just butt heads. And Peter got caught in the middle because when he was around James, he would do what James said. And when he was around Paul, he would do what Paul said. And he got caught in the middle one time. And Paul actually says this, I confronted him to his face and got him to back down. But when Paul was confronted by James, Paul actually backed down one time. James was a very powerful person. Here, here's an interesting fact about James, Jesus' actual brother. That while Jesus walked on the earth, James is not mentioned. He's not one of the twelve. But after the resurrection of Jesus, he becomes a believer. So when you want more proof that the resurrection happened, I would say one of the things you could look at is that your own brother won't follow you <laughs> unless he knows it's true. And once it was irrefutable that Jesus was raised from the dead, he became a believer and an apostle and is named as one of the apostles, not one of the 12, but one of the apostles. And he watched over the church in Jerusalem. But here was the deal. He found himself as James the Just trying to keep the law and live by grace. And he got caught in the middle with the religious leaders in Jerusalem because they saw all of the people being converted to Christianity and it threatened their hierarchy and their power structure. It's the exact reason that they crucified Jesus. And so they got James and they thought, here's what we will do. We will trick him into telling all of these people who are converting to become Christians, we will trick him to say, you've got to keep the law and be Jewish, not find faith in Jesus and let that be enough. So on one of the high holy days, they took him and they put him at the pinnacle of the temple and all of the followers had come to the temple to worship 
And so they put him at the very pinnacle, and with all of the followers down in the courtyard, they yell up to him, tell us about who Jesus is and whether or not we should follow him or whether or not we should keep the law, thinking that he will say, keep the law, and therefore undo all of these people who have found grace in God. But instead, in front of everybody at the highest pinnacle of the temple, he yells back, Jesus is the Son of God. And you should find faith in him and him alone. All the people go nuts. Yay! And thousands of people are converted. But the Jewish leaders begin to pull their hair out and scream and gnash their teeth. So they run to the top of the temple. They grab him and throw him off. But it doesn't kill him. He gets up after being thrown off from the temple. He gets up staggering and tries to open his mouth to tell people about Jesus. And while he's doing that, they begin to stone him, these religious leaders. And one takes out a club. And if you ever see any statuary of James the Just, Jesus' brother, he's holding a club or someone close to him is holding a club because the way he died was opening his mouth for Jesus and was hit in the head with this club. And it cost him his very life. And the only reason I even tell you that story right here, all of these things are never talked about, but the very faith that the first apostles had, every one of them other than John, gave their life physically for the cause of Christ. And you and I sit here today because people have to suffer sometimes for what they believe, yes or no. And somehow we think we have escaped that, and I'm telling you, I'm telling you that in your lifetime, it may be costly for you to confess that you are a follower of Jesus. Here's the second one that I want to talk to you about being a martyr. And if we can define martyr as not a person who just lays down their life, but has to suffer for their faith, then how many of you know when I say Dan Bauman, who I'm talking about? Dan's been here multiple times over the years. The very first time I ever heard him talk, I was actually speaking uh, at YWAM in Kona, and Dan came over to hear me speak. I didn't even know who he was. And I was talking about grace, like I love to do. And Dan came up afterwards and said, hey, we teach a lot of the same things. Maybe you'd like to hear me. And I went over to listen to him, and I thought, this guy and I, we're brothers from another mother. It's just We hear it. We get it. And I said, I'd like you to come to my church and teach. And I didn't know anything about him other than what I heard him teach. And when he came, he said, can I sell some of my books? And I'm like, you've written books? And I said, what have you written? And he said, well, part of my testimony is that I was imprisoned in Iran. And he's actually sold that book here. It's under two different titles. One is Imprisoned in Iran. If you were to Google it, you could find it all over the internet. The other one is Cell 58, because that was the number of the cell he was kept in. And here's what happened in Dan's story. He was uh, uh, backpacking with a buddy uh, around Iraq on the border of Iran. He speaks Farsi, and so he felt that the Lord told him, go into Iran, I want you to meet some people. He has a love for that people, and he has a love for that place. So he goes into Iran, he's there for approximately a week, and on his way back out with a Swiss passport, not American, because he has dual citizenship, his father is Swiss. He's got a Swiss passport, and the only nation really that is respected by Iran to be a neutral nation that mediates for so many other nations is Switzerland. So Dan uses a Swiss passport, and on his way out, they take his passport, and they put him in a room, and he's locked in for six hours. And he realizes something's probably wrong. And it dawns on him 
that I may not be getting out of here. And all of a sudden, he said, this fear began to grip him. And within moments, they came in, threw a bag over his head, handcuffed him, took him away, and it began a nine-month series of beatings and being held in a prison. And when he tells his story, I'm not going to do any justice to his story because it's his story, but this is what he tells. At one point in it, he felt that God had left him, had rejected him, that he had so disappointed God that, that how, could, how could a follower of Jesus who loves Jesus be found in these conditions? And he said his mind began to play tricks on him because he could not understand that if you love Jesus, something like this could possibly happen to you. There was no room in his faith at that time for any suffering. So he finds himself suffering and his brain tells him he's done something wrong. God has left him. And he said it was so debilitating and so depressing that he decided to take his life. And he attempted suicide three different times. He said on the third time, he tried to drown himself. On the third time, he said his body, you know, it's what, this is amazing. The brain can say, I want to die, but the body will say, I want to live. It was created to try to live. And he said he would try to drown himself. And at the last minute, his body would just, you know, and he'd pull out of the water. And on the last one, he cried. He said, Jesus, please. And this is his, he said, a light filled that jail cell, and he saw Jesus. And something about suffering lets us see Jesus in a really interesting way. And he said at that moment, man, he was sure not only that God was with him, but Jesus told him, Dan, I'm going to use this in your life. You've done nothing wrong. I'm with you. And he said he changed his mind on how he was going to go through the suffering. I don't have time to like try to unwind Dan's story, but the bottom line is that in a miraculous way, he was freed from prison. But after coming out of Iran... After having this horrible thing happen to him, you would think, man, he would run as far from the gospel as he could possibly get and never put himself in jeopardy again, and just the opposite has become true. Jesus didn't die so that you can play it safe. Jesus died so that you can be dangerous to the enemy in this world. And we have lost that truth in what we confess to be our gospel. The third one. If you're older, you'll know this name. Uh, if you like to go to the movies, you might have seen this movie in the last few years. Jim Elliott. Know that name? End of the Spear. Jim was a Baptist missionary in 1956. He and five other missionaries decided to go to the AUCA, A-U-C-A Indians, a headhunting group that was known, if you go there, it will cost you your life. And these guys were bold enough to believe that God would send them to such a place. They went, and it was costly. It cost them their life. In fact, the very Indian that killed him was the first convert to Christianity when his wife went back. And the guy that killed Jim Elliott ended up being a preacher of the gospel that caused an entire tribal people who never heard the name of Jesus to come to know Jesus. Would Jim Elliott say it was worth it? You bet he would. He knew exactly what he was doing. In fact, this is Jim Elliott's great big quote. Maybe you've heard it. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I say those words and I wonder if they just go over the top of our head. Or do they land in the heart? He was so respected and revered 
for his stance for God that they named mission institutions after him. They named schools after him. There's one here in Denver named after him. If you had anything to do with the Baptist church in the last 50 years, I guarantee you, you know who Jim Elliott was. And if you don't know, it's only because you don't understand any of the idea of what was held as precious. And here's the, the context and what I want to try to draw to your attention. That, so this happens about 60 years ago that this man lays down his life and he is so revered and so respected that this is what the, this is what the apostles did. This is what it cost people that went before us. And sometimes in order to share the name of Jesus and to hold on to what you believe, it can be so costly, it can cost you your life. We so revered what he did that we named instantly institutions after him and, and for him. And we looked at him like, hey, that's a person who paid the ultimate price. And there was such respect for him. And then last year, listen to this, there was a young man who did something similar. Um, you might have caught it. It was in November of 2018. And his name was John Chow. And John, in November last year, went to the Sentinel Islands off of India to a people group that did not know the name of Jesus, knowing that if he went, it very well could cost him his life. And sure enough, as he tried to reach this people group, they killed him. Sixty years earlier, the church looked at what Jim Elliott did, which was exactly the same, but with a different people group, and we said, wow, look at that. And here was the church's response last year. Look how it's changed. Justin Graves, a pastor and a friend of John Chow's from linguistic school, meaning they went to the same language school in missiology to learn how to do missions together, has blamed evangelical culture for enabling Chow's death. John Chow was a good man, he wrote in a Facebook post. He was loving, a passionate individual. I was blessed to be his friend, and the loss of his life in this earth is devastating, but it cannot be left as a mere tragedy. His death brings to light a multitude of issues with evangelical views of a hell-based heaven belief ethics. And here's what he's saying. That somehow evangelicals today believe there's a real heaven and a real hell. And because of that, people are laying down their lives and something's broken in the church because they're laying down their lives. And I'm just saying in 60 years, we've gone from respecting a person who did it to cursing a person who did it. And the church, instead of seeing this as valuable, sees it as foolish. And so what was written about him in so many commentaries and in so many places, including Christian magazines, is that he was foolish to do what Jesus called him to do. I get the Wall Street Journal and opened up the commentary section, and one of their writers had written a big, long, <laughs> scathing, blaming, ugly thing about how foolish he was to lay down his life, and his last sentence was something to this effect. Where did this belief come from that you are to lay down your life or to go to people groups who reject you? It so motivated me, I wrote a letter to the Wall Street Journal. I said, sir... You want to know where this belief came from? Jesus said, go into all the world, preach the gospel, and don't stop until I return. I'll be with you to the end of the earth. I said, it's the blood of believers that allow you to write what you write today. That's where it came from. And they didn't have the guts to print it. You're a radical pastor. I'm a wimp. Because I've suffered very little from my faith. It's very easy to stand here in front of a group of people who are the choir and preach this message. 
Yay or nay? Jake Wood sent me a video clip um, of a guy named Penn Jillette. You ever heard of Penn and Teller? Penn Jillette's the big guy of the two, the one who talks. How's that? He's an avowed atheist, very vocal about his belief, and uh, anti-Christian for the most part. Um, Jake sent me a video that I'm going to show you here, but let me set it up real quick. He's an avowed atheist, so in this video, he says, I don't believe in God. But it's what he talks about that I want you to hear. It's one thing as a follower of Jesus for me to say there's a heaven and there's a hell, and if we care for people, we tell them even if it's costly. But it's another if an atheist has an opinion about it that might make many people in the church ashamed for the stance that they've taken. So watch this, and I'll come back and close. to talk to you about this uh i get home from the show and at the end of the show as i've mentioned before we go out and we uh we talk to folks and you know sign an occasional autograph and shake hands and so on and there was one guy waiting over to the side in the um, what i call the hover position after i was all done big guy probably about my age big guy and um he had been the, um, the guy who has uh, picks the joke during our psychic comedian section of the show. Uh, so he had the props from that in his hand because we'd give those away. He had the, you know, the joke book and the, and the envelope and the paper and stuff. If you haven't seen the live show, uh, it's not worth explaining. But he had props from the show that we'd given him from the night before. Uh, he wasn't the guy that night. And he walked over to me and he said... Um, I was here last night at the show, and uh, uh, I saw the show and I liked it. I wanted. He was very complimentary about my use of language and um, complimentary about, you know, honesty and stuff. He said nice stuff. No reason to go into it. He said nice stuff. And then he said, "I brought this for you," and he handed me a uh, Gideon Pocket Edition. Um, I thought I said from the New Testament, but I also thought it was Psalms from the New Testament, right? Or, uh, Psalms from the New, just part of the New Testament. Little book about this big, this thick, you know. He said, I wrote in the front of it, and I wanted you to have this. I'm kind of uh, proselytizing. And then he said, I'm a businessman. I'm, I'm sane, I'm not crazy. And he looked me right in the eye and did all of this. And uh, it was really wonderful. I believe he knew that I was an atheist. But he was not uh, defensive. And he looked me right in the eyes. And he was truly complimentary. It wasn't in any way, it didn't seem like empty flattery. He was really kind and nice and sane and looked me in the eyes 
and talked to me and then gave me this Bible. And I've always said, you know, that I, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that, uh, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. And atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize, just leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself. Uh, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. And I've always thought that, and I've written about that, and I've thought of it conceptually. But this guy was a really good guy. He was polite and honest and sane, and he cared enough about me to proselytize and give me a, a Bible, which had written in it a little note to me, uh, not very personal, but just, you know, like to show and so on. And then like five phone numbers for him and an email address if I wanted to get in touch. Now, I know there's no God, and one polite person living his life right doesn't change that. Uh, but I'll tell you, he was a very, very, very good man. And uh, that's really important. And with that kind of goodness, uh, it's okay to have that deep of a disagreement. I still think that religion does a lot of bad stuff, but man, that was a good man who gave me that book. That's all I wanted to say. My point simply is that um, <laughs> if an atheist who doesn't even know that Psalms isn't in the New Testament <laughs> can come up with the understanding that how much do you have to hate someone to not share your faith? That if you really believe there's eternal life, if you really believe that there's a hell, and this atheist is saying it to the church, and people in the church who would watch that today would say, he's crazy. How far we have fallen. And I'm not pointing a finger at anybody, and I'm not saying, look, the truth of the matter is, the ones who will hear this message are the ones who are the most in love with Jesus. That's why you're here. But that's my intended audience. It's that you can go and it can be so easy to sit in a chair and never be challenged. Why you believe, if you're willing to really live it out, and is it costly, are you still going to stick with it? And you know, Jesus himself even predicted what the church would look like when he comes back. Do you want to hear real quick? From the book of Revelation. Chapter 12, verse 11. And they, the church, have defeated him, the devil, by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, and then this sentence. And they did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. So this is what Jesus said about the church when he returns. It'll be a little bloody and a little black and blue but it will be victorious over the devil when everything is said and done. And I think what he's telling us is, 
it could become very costly in this world to profess a belief in Jesus. But those who stick to the end are the ones who overcome and are victorious. And somewhere we've lost that message in Christianity today. And the message we teach here wouldn't fly in most parts of the world because it's so costly for them to live out their faith. That we're used to teaching things about how to acquire goods, be comfortable, and me, me, me. And it wouldn't fly in most places in the world today because it's so costly to confess that you're a lover of Jesus. So, Pastor, what do you want us to do with it? Now that you've beat us up a bit, what do you want us to do with it? Nothing. I don't want you to respond to me at all. Hype and hype alone won't get you anything. In fact, hype will cause you to fall so flat on your face to try to work yourself up. Okay, I'm ready and I'm in. That, that is, you miss my point entirely. I'm just asking the question, if you had to examine your heart today, if it were costly, are you in? Not go out and find suffering. But if it costs you something, if it suddenly turned in your lifetime, are you still in? And that's not a question that I think we sit here and try to figure out in our brain. I think it really is a thing that we weigh out in front of Jesus. And again, I don't think it's the steady diet that you build people up on, but I do think it's part of the food that we need to be aware of and consuming. And I just wonder, I just wonder, man, if it turned on us, if it became costly to come to church. Would it change anything that you do? So, Lord... As I teach the message, I, I, it's my heart you need to sift. I'm not looking at anybody else or thinking of anybody else. Guys, as your eyes are closed, just listen to me for a second. Unless this is your very first weekend here, you know this isn't my normal style. You know I'm not so serious in most messages. You know, that this is not the main thing that I teach. If it is your first weekend, I promise what I just said is true. But I just am convicted and convinced that the Western church today, and in particular the church in America, is so unprepared for any type of trouble, for any type of suffering, for any type of risk. And faith ultimately is spelled R-I-S-K. And we live in a really special time where you can confess 
that you're a believer and not have to practice it and it's not costly, but the gap is narrowing really quickly. And so I'm teaching this message ahead of the curve of what I think might be coming your way at some point. Is that if you say you're a lover of Jesus, words alone won't be the thing that help you get through. It's going to be deep down inside. This thing is real and you're living it out. And again, I'm not trying to get you to go home and do anything. That's the wrong way to handle this message. But before God, can he sift your heart? Can he talk to you about the level of commitment? Can he talk to you about whether or not it's convenience versus conviction? And whether or not you're a fan or a follower? I don't know. I can't look and tell. And just like I said, my heart needs to be sifted by this message first. I'm as convicted by what I'm saying as maybe you are in hearing it. If you want to know any more about what I'm teaching, you have any, if you can be brave, go home and look on YouTube, Wolves Among Sheep. I'm sorry, Sheep Amongst Wolves. And watch about the church in Iran today. It'll do two things to you. One, it'll give you great hope in our faith and in what God is doing that's unreported around the world. It'll give you great hope. But the second thing it'll do, it will convict you about how many believers around the world are having to live out what they believe. And it's so costly. And we here are so blessed. And yet we've fallen so far. I really do hope the world can look at our commitment to Jesus and think those people might be crazy. May they never look at us and go, there's nothing different about what they say than what I say. May it be true and may it be real. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to me, Pastor Jay.